All right, let us pray. Gracious God, as we gather together around your word, we pray that your spirit would be our teacher. Convict us as you will, comfort us as you will, and have your way in our midst to the end that Jesus Christ and him alone might be glorified. Amen. Well, we have come finally to the end of the passion narrative. Passion is kind of a strange word because when we think of passion, we usually think of, uh, I don't know, people getting um, very um, kind of um, aroused and interested and hyper-affectionate or whatever, but the word passion meant originally suffering. So we've been going through the story of Jesus's suffering, and I'm happy to report that now it is finally over. When we came to the end of our episode last week, we saw that Jesus yielded up his spirit with a loud voice. And when that happened, the world changed. Matthew gave us a glimpse of it in miniature. The rocks began to shake. Rocks were opened. We're even told that in kind of like a preemptive move, some people even came out of their graves. Because of course, the penalty for sin had been paid the minute that Jesus died. That's what he was doing on the cross. He was willingly paying the penalty for our sins. And week after week, as we've been going through not just the passion narrative, but all of the, the gospel of Matthew, we've wanted to focus especially on not the lessons that we can derive from the passage, which there are and to which we will come, but on the fact that Jesus calls us to step back and let him do this for us. We are proud people. We like to manage things on our own. We don't like handouts. But when it comes to Jesus having to die for us, he has to do it for us because we were responsible for his death. We deserved to have death attributed to us because of our sin. And Jesus, the only one who was truly sinless, came and he died for us. This was, if you will, a sting operation, as we mentioned last week, when Jesus willingly allowed things to unfold so that he was murdered. He allowed it to happen. God allowed it to happen. And from that day forward, things have been different. So the most important lesson, as always, is to embrace the gospel of Jesus and to let the death of Jesus apply to you. There's no other way by which we are reconciled to God other than through the death of Jesus. And unless he formed the bridge between us and heaven, we can never cross that chasm. And his spread out arms on the cross are like a bridge spanning both across and all across the world to allow us as human beings to have access to him in heaven. So that's the most important lesson sit back and let him do it. And if you've never done that before, you can do that by kind of just receiving this as a gift. Jesus died for you. It's all been looked after. And you simply have to let this gift land on your lap, as it were, and not push it away. This is God's testimony that he loves you. This dead Jesus on the cross who was buried and who a short time later was resurrected. And if you'd like to find out more about what it involves to put your trust in Jesus and to kind of make this individual transfer, uh, nothing could be more important and nothing would be more special for 
um, any number of us, to share that with you further. Jesus died for your sins, and God loves you. We can also come to the lessons. Uh, as some of you know, I am a recently retired uh, professor here at Wycliffe College. And I retired just before, um, well, uh, during the second semester of COVID. I didn't like the fact that we weren't meeting with students anymore. Some of the fun was taken out of it. But one of the things that I really didn't like were uh, an educational program called Outcomes. And any of you who have been teachers who are our teachers know that there are these things called learning outcomes. And you have to identify learning outcomes for your class. And there's a thing called Bloom's Taxonomy. Bloom was a psychologist at the University of Chicago. And in 1956, he came up with this formula for how you would identify that you were actually accomplishing outcomes with your students. And so every time um, you draft a syllabus now, you have to come with outcomes. By the end of the semester, the student will be able to analyze, will be able to do, will be able to create. And there are certain verbs that you're allowed to use and other verbs that you're not allowed to use. And the whole idea, of course, is that at the end of the class, you want the students, whatever may have happened in the class, to actually have accomplished certain things. And as I thought about my dislike for Bloom's taxonomy and for having outcomes imposed upon us over and over again, it occurred to me that it's kind of a good thing. And I think this is actually what God was doing through the whole process of Jesus' suffering. He was dealing with human uh, fickleness, with human decisions to change their minds about things. We saw a number of times when the scene changed. You know, there was this custom where Jesus could have been released for this other guy named Jesus Barabbas. Peter changed his mind. Judas changed his mind. A lot of things could happen that would mean that Jesus didn't end up dying. But I'm sure that God in heaven, when he was looking at all these variables, he had this plan. Despite whatever these human beings are going to do, by the end of Jesus's life, I want him to be placed in a tomb where he will be readily identified so that people will know that he's dead for sure and so that they can be sure that he's resurrected. Another example of this kind of planning in the midst of uh, the variables that we humans experience is what you have with your little GPS. Um, some of you use um, Google Maps. I use Waze. And if you uh, decide that you need to go to Costco, and you decide to go somewhere else, it will say, mm, turn around, um, you're off course, turn left, proceed here. Um, or even if you go the wrong way, it will say, um, recalibrating, blip, 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 and it'll now tell you which way to go to get to the destination. Over and over again, as I preach through and look through these passages having to do with the suffering uh, of Jesus, I've noticed again and again how God orchestrates the whole thing in the midst of all of these different human variables. And as I think about that, I think it's an incredible encouragement to us to know that in the midst of all of the awful things that happen in life, which really truly are awful, God is working his purposes for good and he's recalibrating things so that in the end, he's able to accomplish his good purposes for you and for me. There's a lot of awful stuff that happens in the meantime. And if that sounds trivial and it sounds kind of just like syrupy religion, God himself knew well what that was like because it was God incarnate, the son of the living God who was hanging on a cross and who was the victim of the most awful of circumstances, 
the most awful scheming that he himself orchestrated to, as I said previously, to die for our sins. And so our passage today is about what happened after Jesus died. When it was evening, there came a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was himself also disciple to Jesus. Well, of course, you know Joseph of Arimathea. Um, no. Up to this point, none of us has ever heard of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea comes out of the blue, and he steps in at a certain point in God's plan, and he is a Jewish leader, a member of the Sanhedrin, we're told in the other Gospels, who was uh, fearful of Jesus, or he, he was fearful of um, the religious authorities, his fellow Jews, but he worked up the courage, we're told, to go and approach Pilate, asking for his body. Pilate then ordered for it to be given over. And for the lover of Jesus, this just comes as absolute magic because finally somebody is taking care of Jesus. Taking the body, Joseph wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And having rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb, he went away. If it were not for Joseph of Arimathea, this man, Jesus, would have continued to hang on the cross. If he hadn't been a Jew, the custom of the Romans was simply to let him hang on the cross as a dead person until he decayed and birds would come and peck at people's flesh. And even if the person was a Jew, out of respect for Jewish custom, they would allow the person to be taken down from the cross, but then he would be thrown on a common grave and piled up with dozens of other people who may have been crucified in previous weeks and previous days. Imagine that circumstance and imagine how difficult it would be to prove that Jesus was risen from the dead when he was put in this communal kind of a, a, a burial ground. So I believe that a God is once again ordaining that a certain individual just steps forward. This time it's a person with good intentions and God is accomplishing his purposes through somebody with good intentions. And it works out well for Joseph of Arimathea, I'm sure. Worked out especially well for Jesus because he was finally well taken care of. He was taken a short distance away and put in, a, um, in, in what was probably a communal tomb. There would have been um, a hole cut in the rock and a kind of a cave made out of the soft limestone outside of Jerusalem. And it was a, likely a family tomb. And it would have been a little bit like a, kind of a, an open space. And in the middle, there was... Um, uh, a table where the body was prepared. And after the body was prepared, it would be placed in one or uh, another of six, seven, eight separate little rooms in this family burial chamber. So here's Jesus wrapped in this clean linen cloth, and he is laid out in this new tomb, which Joseph um, newly had made, and which we're told here that Joseph had cut in the rock. And then he rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb, securing Jesus. My friends, I want you to notice that God gets his way in the end. And that's a good thing because God is good. God is loving. His purposes for us as his followers is good. A lot happens that is wrong in the world, but God can work through evil people. And God can also work, as we now know, in the case of Joseph of Arimathea, through well-intentioned people to accomplish his perfect purposes. And then in verse 61, we see again, as we saw last week, that there is the witness of the women. The disciples had run away from Jesus, but the women were standing at a distance. 
They had ministered to him all along, and once again, we get those words in verse 61, which we saw at the end of our passage last week. Now there was there Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Here is testimony to two groups of individuals, Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy male Jew, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, uh, probably not so wealthy, female Jewesses, who are attending to Jesus. They are participating in God's purposes cooperatively. That's the best way to do it. Either way, God is going to have his way, which is a good thing. And if our purposes are evil, we're not going to benefit from God having his way in the end. But if our purposes are good, as was the case with Joseph of Arimathea and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, then it works out well for us and we get to receive the blessings that come with cooperation with the will of God. Some of you uh, have a favorite story. It's one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, and it's the story of Ruth. Um, Ruth is a, a, a Moabite woman who um, returns from Moab to Judah with uh, her mother, Naomi, and they're destitute. But Naomi and Ruth are faithful, and they live this life of faithfulness. Uh, Ruth meets this guy named Boaz, and they have a wonderful romance. They have a wonderful relationship. The story is filled with romance and goodwill. And you're smiling kind of all the way through once things begin to turn and once the romance develops. And then they die. But the biblical writer goes on to tell us, these were the relatives of King David, something that Ruth... Naomi, Boaz could never have had the slightest inkling about. I wonder what things you and I do, like Joseph of Arimathea and like Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, that cooperate with the will of God, that end up producing something good further down the road that we have no inkling of. Most of us die with little more to show for it than, you know, Lord, I tried to do this and I did that. I messed up here, but here and there, I, I did my best to cooperate with your will. And what do I have it in? What do I see of it in the end? Perhaps nothing. In the Gambia, where I go once a year, this little country in West Africa, I met a woman in the inland part of the Gambia called Ellie. She went there as a student to this little village where she was the only Christian. And uh, as she was there with a Christian group, uh, I believe it was YWAM, might have been Campus Crusade for Christ, she had a vision, and God appeared to her, she says, in the person of Jesus, and said, Ellie, I want you to stay in this village for the rest of your life and serve me. Ellie is still there with her family. They are still, so far as they know, the only Christians in this entire village. Ellie and her husband have seen no fruit to speak of, and they're okay with that because Ellie's convinced that God called her there and by her doing the will of God at some point in the future, God's purposes will be revealed for good to the people of this small village in the Gambia. That, my friends, is faith. That, my friends, is fidelity. Joseph of Arimathea, Mary Magdalene, and the other Mary, and I hope you and me know what it is to cooperate with the will of God so that good things happen. At the right time, this man came and the stage was set for there to be no doubt about the fact that Jesus was dead, 
dead as a doornail. There could be no other way around it. Confirmed by the Romans who were in the business of crucifying, uh, laid in the tomb, um, sealed by the tomb, witnessed by the women, and here he is in the tomb waiting to be resurrected. We're reminded in the next paragraph of people who cooperate in the alternative way. On the morrow, we're told, which is actually the day of the Sabbath, the chief priests and the Pharisees were, of course, worshiping in the synagogue. No, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened before the Gentile Pilate, ruler, saying, Lord, we are reminded that that deceiver, while still having said, while still living, said, after three days I am risen. Here we see a group of people who are acting contrary to the will of God in terms of their intentions, but in perfect accordance with the will of God when all is said and done. Their hypocrisy is highlighted by the use of the word Lord, which might mean sir, but it's the same word that is used of Lord. And Matthew sees the irony here that the Jewish leaders, these particular Jewish leaders who believe that Jesus is a deceiver, remember what Jesus said. After three days, I am risen. Order, therefore, the grave to be secured until the third day, lest his disciples come and steal him and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. Here are Jesus' opponents, people who don't even believe in him. And they're quoting in their minds and they're imagining a group of people who will say to other people, he is risen from the dead. They're anticipating Easter while not believing in it at all. And over and over again, we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew these foreshadowings of things that are going to happen in the future. John the Baptist's death is a prelude to the death of Jesus. Things are said by someone like Caiaphas, who says it's better that one man should die for the people than that all of the people die. Here the high priest was prophesying without even knowing it. And here the religious leaders are talking about the disciples saying to the people, he's risen from the dead all in the context of what they believe to be deception. And they call it, the last deception will be worse than the first. They're participating in a kind of a pseudo-prophecy. And it is the chief priests, after all, who are involved in this process. So that's not surprising. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go and make it secure as best you know how. So they went and made the grave secure with a guard and by sealing the stone. You'll notice here, Pilate is somewhere in the middle. We saw a reluctant Pilate in the past. And I believe that Pilate is still um, compliant with the Jewish wishes, but he's kind of somewhere in the middle, maybe like you are today. If you look carefully at this text, going back to verse 59, you'll notice that it says, then Pilate ordered it to be given over. That's the body of Jesus. And it's my own personal belief, and lots of people don't believe this, but it's my own personal belief that when you look at the text carefully, Matthew ordains and, and organizes it so that Pilate will not use Jesus as the object of a verb. Pilate says, okay, go ahead and do it. And the it thing is what the Jews want. So here we have people who are cooperating with the will of God. Here we have people who are opposing the will of God. And here's someone who reminds me at times of myself, like Pilate, who's somewhere in the middle, maybe wanting to do the right thing, but pressured by others to go with the flow. 
and to give over the fort. We have a lot of pressure in our culture to compromise the meaning of the gospel, to take half measures in our following of Jesus, to go with the crowd, to not make things as stark as they are when it comes to the person of Jesus, who's the son of the living God. My friends, my question for us this afternoon as we consider this passage is, have you given your life over to Jesus? That's the most important thing. Have you put your trust in him and allowed his death to suffice for you, to be, as it were, to put it very crassly, your passport to heaven? There's no other way by which humans can be saved than through the death, the crucifixion, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He did that for you. And you can accept that and receive the gift of salvation by allowing it to be God's gift to you this day. And if you are a follower of Jesus, please be reminded that we have options. We can cooperate with the will of God to our good and to the good of the kingdom. We can oppose the will of God to our bad and to the furtherance of the kingdom. Or we can be somewhere in the middle, like Pilate. Who are you this day? Is your name Joseph? Is your name chief priest and Pharisee? The equivalent of senior pastors and religious leaders sometimes in the church? Or are you Pilate, somewhere in the middle? Either way, in the end, God has his way, and his purposes for you are good, and to bring you to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.